Well, if you ever come to, to our house and go up to our kids' playroom, one of the, the key um, pits of destruction in the kids' playroom, if I can put it that way, is the dress-up bucket that's full of all of, because we've got four boys in our house and one girl who has outgrown the dress-up phase, uh, that dress-up bucket is full of all of the superhero costumes and everything else like that. And, and uh, our, our twins love it. They probably make use of it the most, although Luke still jumps in there and dresses up like Black Panther. You should ask him to do his Black Panther if you see him later tonight. It's, uh, it's pretty good. He does the whole Wakanda forever and jumps down in the pose. It's pretty impressive. Um, but Jonathan likes to dress up like a firefighter. So he'll put on the costume and he'll come downstairs and he carries the hose that's attached to nothing and he's there to put out the fire. And he dresses up like a firefighter, and sure, it's, it's a, a facsimile of what a firefighter's costume outfit might look like. Luke, I don't mean to insult you by calling it a costume. I know it's not a costume, but a firefighter's uniform might look like. For Jonathan, it's a costume, because at the end of the day, though my four-year-old might look cute in his firefighter outfit, you don't want him showing up to fight any fires on your behalf. In fact, if you call 911 and they send Jonathan, then our country is far worse off than, uh, than it is right now or ever could possibly be, ever. Because he's four, and though he might look on the outside like a firefighter, he's just, he's not a firefighter. He doesn't know the first thing about fighting fires. The passage before us tonight in Hebrews is one of the most difficult passages in the entirety of the New Testament. In fact, if not the entirety of the Bible. It's both wrongly been written off on the one hand as a hypothetical straw man from the author, and this is a situation that we don't really need to worry about because this is impossible, so why even bother with it? Why even worry about it? We can just kind of gloss over it and move on. That's not the right approach to Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. But on the other side, it's been put forward as a, a passage that is producing an unhealthy fear in genuine believers because it's been put forward as a text that shows and demonstrates that you can actually lose your salvation. And I think both of those approaches to this passage are at their hearts wrong. I think they're erroneous. I think this is a passage that believers need to give attention to, but I also don't believe that this passage is teaching us that we can actually lose our salvation. In the passage in front of us tonight, Hebrews 6, 4 through 12, particularly verses 4 through 6, the author turns his attention to deal with a scenario, and that scenario is the scenario of apostasy. To apostatize is to fall away from Christ. It's, in the Greek, a word that meant to fall alongside. And so if you think about traveling down the road and blowing a tire out and careening off into a ditch, that's to apostatize. It's to abandon. It's to reject. It's to walk away from. It's to turn away from Christianity and Christ. And as the author describes it, it's a very real situation. As the author describes it, it's a, a warning that he's actually issuing to those that he's writing to. It's a, a passage that is more direct, but not all that different from where he's already been so far in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if we glanced back, we would find in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, for instance, where he says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or if you jump down just two verses to verse 3, he says this, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Or if you go to chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, there's a condition, we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion, as they did, rather, in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from, to apostatize from the living God. Verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ conditionally if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Verse 15, again that quotation, as it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verse 11. Glance down the page there. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none or no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
And then chapter 5, verse 9, where he writes this, Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So you see, the author has already been talking about our need to hold fast, our need to endure, our need to, to persevere and not fall away and not drift away to make sure that we don't fail to enter the rest. And so when we get to chapter six, verse four, it's, it's so startling because he's coming at it directly head on. But he's already been writing about these things. So we come to Hebrews chapter six, verse four, and we read this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. There's our word there to apostatize to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, I want to let you know, I understand as I preach tonight that I'm walking a fine line here between the need to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. There are some of you here in this room who are genuinely believers in Jesus Christ, and yet you are plagued with a struggle of a constant doubt about your security in Christ, and you need to be reminded tonight that you are secure in Christ. In fact, we read this from Jesus himself in John chapter 6. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, what does Jesus say here? I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him, the Father who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Christian, if you're here tonight and you would say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I understand that I am a sinner, that I am in desperate need of the grace of God, and that that was realized at the cross, that Jesus died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven, that he rose from the dead so that I will live forever with him, and that he will come back one day for me. If that's you, you say, that's me. I believe in Jesus. I am saved. I am in Christ. And you are growing in your relationship with Jesus. Christian, I'm not here tonight to cause you to fear apostatizing. In fact, you can be comforted tonight. You can be comforted tonight, and you'll see that as we continue in the passage, because the writer's going to say, look, if you're a Christian, you don't need to fear apostatizing. Apostatizing. You don't need to fear falling away. But I also understand tonight that there may be some in the room who are just like Jonathan in the dress-up costume, except you're not playing firefighter, you're playing Christian. You're here tonight, and you're calling yourself a believer, but you've got one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You're here tonight, and your faith is the faith of the seed that was sown in the shallow soil that maybe initially had signs of life, but then when the sun came up, it, it scorched that seed. The cares of the world choked out that seed. Or maybe you're here tonight, and you're like the seed that fell on the, the thorny soil. And the, the persecution, the fear of, of what the world's going to think if you say, no, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. And the fear of what it's going to cost you to be a follower of Jesus causes you eventually to, to walk away, to apostatize, to fall away. For you, if that's you tonight, and you say, yeah, I, I'm here, and I know I'm telling everybody I'm a believer, but I, man, if I'm honest with myself, I haven't really committed to Jesus. For you tonight, this is one more opportunity for you with a direct and stern and harsh warning from our author to surrender everything to Christ. And to see that he is better than anything. Verses 4 through 6 can be a little bit choppy. So I rephrased it. But this is basically what the author says. He says, look, it's impossible to restore again to repentance. That's his thesis. Well, it's impossible to restore again to repentance who? Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, or have once been enlightened, rather, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore that person to repentance. Impossible is in the emphatic position in the Greek text here. It's the first word in verse four. And the reason the author did that is because they didn't have command B. In other words, they couldn't bold anything. 
They couldn't underline it, put it in italics. So if the Greek author wanted to emphasize something as he was writing the letter, he would put it at the very beginning of the sentence that he was writing. It was a way for them grammatically to say, this is the most important concept that I'm trying to get you to understand here. And in verse four, he says, the most important thing that I want you to understand is the impossibility of being restored to repentance if you fall away from Christ. If that got your attention, I imagine it probably got the original audience's attention as well. The word impossible shows up other places in Hebrews. Hebrews 6.18 it says it's impossible for God to lie. It means he can't do it. Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sin. It's powerless. They can't do it. Hebrews 11.6, it's impossible to please God Apart from faith, you can't do it. Hebrews 6, 4, it's impossible to be restored to repentance once you have rejected and denied Christ. Well, what does that look like? Who are these people that have walked away? Let's talk about the descriptors of them. The first is those that have been enlightened. What does that mean? to be enlightened. Well, let's look at how it's used other places in the scriptures. Ephesians 1.18 says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's speaking of Christians there saying that part of being a Christian is to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. Or 2 Corinthians 4, speaking on the, the negative side of things, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, notice the language here, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, this word enlightened in the Greek is photizo, where we get our word photon or photography. It has everything to do with light. To be enlightened is to have light shown into your life. Well, Paul says the problem for the unbelievers is that they're unable to see the light of the gospel, of the, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to be enlightened, as it's used most often in Scripture, it's used in connection with salvation. And so the first thing that we notice about the people that are falling away here is that they are are not, rather, the the people who are the, the Amazonian tribesmen who's never heard the gospel before. This is not the atheist. This is not the Muslim, right? This is not the Islamic terrorist who's blowing himself up. That, that the author's saying, hey, once they've made those decisions, it's impossible for them to be saved. No, he's not, he's not talking about that person. The person that he's talking about here is the, the Iwana graduate. The person that he's talking about here is the compass kid that's grown up exposed to the gospel. Not, even heard, not only just heard the gospel, but this is someone who would say, I believe the gospel. Maybe they're even telling other people about the gospel themselves. Because as he's continued, not only are they the ones that have been enlightened, but they're the ones also that have, as he continues, tasted of the heavenly gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15, speaking of salvation, the apostle Paul says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Or Psalm 34.8 Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why is he good? Because he delivers us. What is his inexpressible gift? It's the gift of salvation. And the author says, those who have tasted of it, and there are some commentators that are are wanting to say, well, yeah, but this is like when you taste coffee for the first time and you're like, "Ah, I don't like it. Well, I've got a problem with that when I read Hebrews 2.9 where the author used the same word for tasted and said that Christ tasted death for us all. Was that a partial tasting of death for us or a full tasting of death for us? It's a full tasting of death for us. So in the immediate preceding context here, the author has used this word to say, no, this is a full tasting of it. And he's saying, look, these are people who have been enlightened. They understand the gospel. And not only that, but they've They've tasted of the heavenly gift of salvation in general and the benefits of it 
at least from an earthly perspective. This is not someone, in other words, who's keeping things at an arm's length going, well, I, mm, I don't know. I'm, I'm around the church. I'm around God's people, but I'm not really all in with God's people. This is somebody that's saying at least verbally and on the surface, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I understand. I believe that. I'm a Christian. That's, that's why, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a Christian. From the outside, they look Christian show signs of joy and gratitude, even talk about God's goodness in their life. Because they've also done what? They've also, he says, shared in the Holy Spirit. Shared in the Holy Spirit. There's debate around that phrase. Does it mean that they've received the Holy Spirit? I would stop short there. I don't believe they have because I believe the apostatizing, the falling away shows that they have not. But there's an idea of participating in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that they have been blessed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life and potentially even, and hear me out on this, potentially even exercise some spiritual gifts themselves. How is that possible? Well, how many preachers have disqualified themselves and walked away from the ministry and walked away from Christianity afterwards? And yet, what were they doing? They were preaching and teaching the word of God. Or how about the Apostle Paul? When Paul's in prison and people come to him in Philippi there, and they're like, hey, Paul, we've got a problem. These people are preaching Christ, but they're only preaching Christ to gain fame and notoriety for themselves. And yet, Paul says, hey, they're still good to come out of that, because whether they do it in pretense or in truth, what? Christ is proclaimed. Christ is preached. So they've shared in the Holy Spirit I think this is further defined by the next two descriptions. Not only have they shared in the Holy Spirit, but they have tasted of the goodness of the word of God. They sit under the teaching of the scriptures. They're instructed by the preaching and teaching of the word of God. They absorb the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And they've not only tasted the goodness of the word of God, but also of the powers of the age to come. I believe that that's specific to this audience that the writer was writing to. I think this is a, an example of the miraculous that was taking place at the early stages of the church. And they've seen amazing things that God has done. So this is a group who's heard the gospel and been able to understand to an extent the gospel. They've responded in some form to the gospel. And they participated in the life of the church in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a group by all appearances who would pass the eye test for what makes someone a Christian. But it's these who have fallen away. Fallen away. And now I want to talk about what that means. Because some of you may be out there going, well, then how do I know that I'm not going to fall away someday? Because that sounds a lot like me. Apostasy is this. It's intentional rebellion against and rejection of the gospel in Jesus. It's an intentional rebellion against and rejection of the gospel in Jesus. Here's what apostasy is not. It's not a period of unconfessed sin. There's a difference between being self-deceived and being an apostate, in other words. To harbor unconfessed sin in your life, I'm not telling you that you're okay, don't worry about it. I'm just telling you that's not apostasy. It's also not a, a specific or particular sin that cannot be forgiven. Well, is this the unpardonable sin? No, the unpardonable sin was while Jesus was alive and doing miracles to attribute what he was doing to the power of, of Satan to attribute Jesus' power to do the miraculous to demons. That was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. Apostasy is not the unpardonable sin. No, apostasy is a willful, clear rejection of Jesus in the gospel. Again, deliberate. A deliberate decision to walk away. You cannot accidentally apostatize. There's never been an accidental apostate in the history of the church. This is not an atheist or a Muslim who's always been hardened to the gospel. 
but someone who once even professed faith. And then there's some sort of catalyst. Something happens in their life and they throw it all away. And it's an intentional, willful rejection. The apostate knows what they are doing. They're not saying, I want a different brand or a different shade or a different color of Christianity. They're not saying, I want a different denomination or a different church tradition or a different way of of preaching. They're saying, I don't want Jesus or the gospel anymore. I don't believe it. I don't buy into it. It's not for me. I'm rejecting it outright. That is what it is to apostatize. Now, I want you to consider, why would the author be writing about the dangers of apostasy to this church that he's writing to and addressing in the letter to the Hebrews? Well, remember the context. They're facing increasing opposition for their faith. That increasing opposition to their faith is causing them to look back over their shoulders at Judaism and say, hey, man, it was way easier to be a Jew. And Rome didn't really care when we were Jews. They kind of let us do our own thing. And now there's this guy named Nero on the scene, and there's a lot of danger and harm for Christians. In fact, some of them may have even been driven away from their homes because of persecution. And they're looking back at Judaism, kind of going, maybe we should slip back to that. Also, the author is writing, doubtless, to a group that included both believer and unbeliever. As I am assuredly preaching in this room tonight by the size of the, the, room, the group in the room to those in this room who are both believer and unbeliever also. And so he's warning them of the grave dangers of turning back. He wanted them to make sure that they were not going to apostatize. Now, when we interpret scripture, here's what we have to do. We have to bring what's called a biblical theology to our interpretation and understanding of the Bible. So what that means is I can't take one verse or one passage like Hebrews 6 on the subject of salvation and eternal security and extrapolate out of that one passage an entire understanding of what the Bible teaches on eternal security. I need to look at the whole thing. And if all we had was just Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 on eternal security, then here's the deal. You would walk away saying, man, I can lose my salvation. But because we have the rest of biblical theology to help inform our understanding of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and you'll talk about some of those verses, those other verses in your small group time, we can know that that this is not teaching that we can lose our salvation because if the writer of Hebrews was teaching that, that you can lose your salvation, that if you are truly saved, that you can somehow apostatize, if the writer was teaching that, he would be in disagreement with so much of the rest of the Bible. And so what is this passage there for, for you if you're a Christian in the room tonight? Because that's primarily who I'm speaking to tonight. For you, it's like this. You ever driven up the, the switchback roads up a mountainside? And you've looked to the left as you're going up and you've seen that guardrail there? And you've thought, man, I don't want to go on the other side of that guardrail. And even as you're driving or as maybe your parents were driving when you were younger, you kind of were like, hey, dad, can you slide a little bit closer to the mountain? Because I want to do everything that I can to stay away from that guardrail. When we were going to Prescott, if you were in my car or the cars around me, um, the heavens opened up on us. And uh, I think Danny was, was driving behind me. And we were creeping up that mountain at like five miles an hour because there was no guardrail and I couldn't see a thing. And at one point, Danny lost my taillights and he thought I was gone. He thought me and the whole car was over the edge. I missed the guardrail at that point. Y'all, Hebrews 6, for you if you're a believer, is the guardrail. Yeah, you may never go over the edge of the mountain because you're safe in Christ, but the guardrail is going to remind you of the dangers of drifting and it's going to cause you to cling closer to the side of the mountain. It's going to cause you to cling closer to Christ. Point number one tonight is this. Secure yourself against the dangers of apostasy. Secure yourself against the dangers of apostasy. How? Well, number one, make sure that you are in Christ. We've preached that already, right? In fact, I started a whole message by saying, make sure he's your high priest. Well, here it is. Make sure you are in Christ because if you're not in Christ, well, then there is no guardrail and you are hanging over that mountain waiting to go tumbling. And so make sure that you have surrendered yourself to Jesus, that you have recognized that you need him, that his death on the cross was for you. That he died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. That he rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. 
And that he's given you his spirit so that you can follow him as your Lord and your king. Make sure you have made that decision and said, I don't want just some of you, Jesus, but I want all of you, Jesus. Because I don't need only some of you. I need all of you. So you want to make sure that you're not going to apostatize. Number one, make sure you're actually in Christ. And if you've done that, if you've done that, genuinely done that, well, let me tell you this. You do not have anything to fear about Hebrews 6. You don't have to fear that all of a sudden you're going to wake up tomorrow and be an apostate. But if you're just flirting with Christianity, flirting with Jesus, if you're trying out this whole church thing, and maybe that's been your whole life, and you have not yet fully surrendered to Christ, well, then the, the, the danger is very real that Romans 1, God could finally turn you over to your sin, and you could wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm done with Christ, and I'm done with Christianity, and I'm done with the gospel. You could go over the edge. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards described a believer, or not a believer rather, but as a person who is not in Christ as dangling from a single thread of a spider's web over the eternal fires of hell, not knowing when that thread was going to snap. Y'all, if you are not in Christ, you have two wheels off the side of the mountain and you're waiting for a strong breeze to push you over. This warning is for you. Judas Iscariot. You remember the name? Our world even knows that name. Tell anyone else in the world, hey, you're, you're such a Judas. They're going to know what you're talking about. That you are a betrayer. That you are Somebody who has turned their back, turned away from those closest to them. Think about Judas, one of Jesus' closest companions during the three years of his earthly ministry. One of his inner circle saw what Jesus did, spent time with him and his other followers, heard the teachings. Think about it. He was there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. benefited from Jesus' miracles, and yet he apostatized. In other words, here's what I want you to understand. Just because you're around Christ in Christianity doesn't do anything for you. Does nothing for you. You don't have to just be around Christ in Christianity. You have to be in Christ with that commitment of the gospel. And you could fill books, books, libraries with the names of people who initially showed signs of life only to drift away. In fact, you sitting out there, you know names and faces. And I want you to think of them right now. People that you grew up with. People that you were in Awana with, from Cubbies all the way through. People that stood up there and won the Timothy Award with you. People that you were in Edge with, in the Narrow with, in True North with. And then they graduate and they're like, peace, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with Christianity anymore. That's what we're talking about here. They've forsaken Christ, forsaken the gospel, rejected it deliberately and willfully, knowingly. No one's forcing them to do this. They are choosing to walk away from everything. And the writer is saying, beware of doing that. Another way that you can secure yourself in Christ is by remembering and realizing what you have in Jesus. Your forgiveness from your sins, nothing in this world can offer you that. You have hope beyond the grave, nothing in this world can offer you that. You have the promise of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, nothing in this world can offer you that. You have the blessings of adoption as sons of the creator God, nothing in this world can offer you that. The more you love Jesus, the less likely you will be to drift from Jesus. Our writer doesn't want us to doubt our standing in Christ, but to look at that guardrail and to understand the dangers of what's over the edge and to move closer to Christ. Because those who drift, those who fall, he says fall forever. And that's why he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. 
Yo, once a person has rejected Jesus, there's nowhere else for them to turn for repentance. Once a person has said, I don't want Christ, I don't need Jesus, there's nowhere else for them to turn to be right with God. That's why he says it's impossible to restore them to repentance because they've rejected the only source of repentance in Christ. He says they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. They're holding him up to contempt. It's like the crowd that was there mocking Jesus as he's being crucified. You who saved others, can't you save yourself? Hey, physician, heal yourself. Hey, where's your angels? Call them down. Get off the cross. Come, come after us. You fraud, you fake. When we reject Christ, we are despising, despising his death for us, saying, I don't need it. Treating him with contempt. Sitting arrogantly over Jesus going, I don't need you. I don't want you. Those that do that, y'all, are not Christians and were never Christians. So even though the language is strong here, they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good, good works of, of the, the, the word of God and the powers of the age to come. All that language is so strong and yet, I can confidently stand up here and tell you, these are not genuine Christians if they fall away. How do you say that, Pastor PJ? First John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. So John says, look, the person that falls away, that walks away, that rejects us, that rejects Jesus, was never with Jesus to begin with. This is what I mean by a biblical theology informing our understanding of our eternal security. And so even though the language is so strong, what John's saying here is that this is not somebody who's just trying out Jesus. And he's like, yeah, I, I went to church a couple times. I didn't like it. John's using such strong language because he wants to grab hold of the person that's trusting in Jesus by osmosis rather than trusting in Jesus for everything. They're trusting in being close enough to Jesus and not close enough to Jesus' church and saying, well, hopefully if I'm close enough to Jesus and a good enough person, I'll be good. The writer's writing to that person, the, the, the person that's heard the gospel, that could tell you the gospel and tell you the four spiritual laws and argue why lordship salvation is the way to go. It, it's that type of person, the person that's read Wayne Grudem in the systematic theology, the person that's taken classes at CBI, the, the person that's been baptized in front of a whole audience, and yet they are not truly in Christ. Well, how do I know if I'm truly in Christ? Well, we've preached on that so many times here in this ministry, right? I mean, you can look at Paul, the fruit of the spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. I mean, we begin to examine our lives to see whether or not there's evidence of, of growth there. And that's not the sermon that I'm trying to preach right now. I'm saying he's writing to people that think that, that they're good. But they were never good. Because if they fall away, they were never with us. If you're driving up the mountain road, you're going to hug the side of the mountain and not go anywhere near the guardrail. No one flirts with the edge just to have fun when there's certain death on the other side. Likewise, Christian, we shouldn't be flirting with this world. The cares of the world, the temptations of the world, we should not be looking at the world as something that's desirable, but something that's a danger and a threat to us. should hold fast to Christ, hug the mountain of God's grace, and let that healthy fear of falling keep us from ever drifting. He continues in verse 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But... If it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So now he's illustrating the point that he just made. He's saying, look, land that receives rain and produces a good crop receives a blessing from God. But the land that receives the rain, notice it's still receiving the good things. It's drunk the rain that often falls on it. The land that receives the rain and, and yet produces thorns and thistles he says is worthless and near to being cursed and ends 
up being burned. He uses an agricultural illustration that would have been easily accessible for his audience, living in an agricultural society there. They would have followed his argument here. And so he's saying, look, those that have been exposed to the preaching of the word of God around the church, around Christians, around believers, the, the rain has fallen and they have drunk of the rain, in other words, okay? And then they're bearing fruit, producing a crop. It says they receive the blessing of God. Continued blessing here on earth, but ultimately the blessing of being with him for all of eternity. But on the other hand, the, rain that, the, the land that also receives the rain, the preaching of the word of God, being around believers, being around other Christians, and yet what they produce in their life is thorns and thistles, right? Worthless things. He says that land is worthless. And he says it's near to being cursed. Well, that would have called to mind Old Testament concepts of blessings and curses from the book of Deuteronomy. That would have called to mind the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. Christ became a curse for us because all of us were cursed under the law. He's saying, look, if, if you've drunk of the rain and you're producing thorns and thistles in your life, if your Christianity comes down to the costume that you put on when you show up at church, then you should have very little to no confidence in your standing in Christ. Christian, what does your life look like? Maybe I should rephrase that. Student, what does your life look like? By nature of the fact that you're here tonight, you have drunk from the rain from God. And that has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the fact that the Bible is open and you're listening to God's word. And most of you in this room, I recognize and I see here often. And I see you on the weekend services, which is awesome. But I'm just saying you are drenched and flooded What are you doing with it? What impact is that having in your life? What has it yielded in your life? Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, he's brought out the stick, here comes the carrot. Though we speak in this way, which why why is that? Can we just have a lighthearted moment for a second? A carrot? Like, can we not bring out the Twinkie? Like, the stick, and then here's the Twinkie. Like, we're not rabbits or horses in, in here, right? So, he's bringing out the Twinkie. Or the, the um, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. That's even better. Sour Patch Kids. He's bringing those out right now. Maybe not, because that's sour at first. Maybe this whole passage is the Sour Patch Kid. Sour at first, sweet in the end. There you go. Take that one home. Or don't. Verse 9, though we speak in this way. So he's saying, look, I get that what I've just said is hard to hear. And I don't think he's just talking about verses 4 through 6. I think he's talking about everything where he said, look, you guys, what are you doing? Kicking into gear. By now, you guys should be teachers. But you have need for milk, not solid food. So I was thinking, he's talking about the whole thing. Look, though we speak in this way, but specifically he's talking about the fact that there are some that will fall away. There are some that will apostatize. And there are some that will produce the thorns and thistles and not the goodness in their lives that they should. He says, though we do speak that way, yet he says, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Things that belong to what? Salvation. You see there too why it's erroneous to argue that this is suggesting that a believer, that a true Christian can lose their salvation because he's differentiating now saying, now let me talk about things about salvation. That's what we're sure about for you, Christian. Beloved. For, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work in the love that you have shown for his name, serving the saints as you still do. He's saying, look, you've been bearing fruit. God's not going to overlook that all of a sudden and, and cause you to, to wake up tomorrow and reject Jesus. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to keep going and to have the full assurance of hope. Notice, he says, I, you Christians, I want you to have the full assurance of hope. Until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Beloved, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, Paul's talking about himself in that group as a group of believers, as a group of Christians, he's addressing them that way. Beloved, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Well, the only ones that are sojourners and exiles are those that are truly in Christ. 
So Peter's calling them beloved because they're part of the family of God. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Hey, Christian, don't be surprised at persecution. Beloved, 1 John 3.2, beloved, we are God's children now. It can't get any more plain than that. Beloved, we are God's children now. Or Jude 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. He's addressing Christians, beloved there. So when our author says here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel confident of better things, things belonging to salvation. The writer is addressing them as Christians, saying, hey, I want you to have a confidence in your salvation. I want you to have a confidence because you can look back and see the work that you've done and the service that you've rendered to the Lord and know that the Lord is not going to despise such things. The love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints That's a good thing. That's something for you to look at and hang your hat on. You want to be confident? Christian, if you're out there tonight going, hey, I want more confidence in my relationship with the Lord, look at what the writer of Hebrews tells you to do. Look back at the work in your life and the evidence of God's work in you in your life, how you've served one another, how you've loved one another. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus, before going to the cross, says to his disciples, write a new commandment I give to you. What? that you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all the world know that you are my followers. If you get baptized, Mm-mm. if you profess faith in Jesus, nope. If you graduate from CBI, it's a step in the right direction, but no. If you carry an ESV, the extra spiritual version, no. If you carry the NASV, the super spiritual version, no. If you carry the KJV, the only version, right? No, it's not. And definitely not. No, it's none of that. He says, by this, the world will know that you are mine. If you love one another, which is an allusion back to, well, how do I love others unless I'm loving God? Because when Jesus is asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says, the greatest commandment is love God and love other people. Love God with all that you are. And then as you love him with all that you are, let that overflow into your love for other people. And so, Christian, you want to be confident. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, church that I'm writing to, you guys want to be confident? You want to have full assurance of hope? Hey, remember the work that you've done. God's not going to overlook that or despise that. And remember your love for one another, your love for the saints. God's not going to overlook that or despise that, Christian. You can have security and full assurance of hope there. And then he says, and we desire even though, look, I, even though I, I, yeah, I'm convinced of these things, better things, things belonging to salvation for you. He says this, Christian, this is what I want from you, what I want to see from you, my desire for you. He says, my desire for you is that you show the same earnestness. Don't let up, slow up, or give up. Keep going. Keep pressing on towards Jesus. Keep hugging the side of the mountain. Just because you're secure, don't drift towards that guardrail. Keep close to Christ. Get as close as you possibly can. Scrape the side of your passenger side door on Jesus. Cling to Christ. Show the same earnestness. Have the full assurance of hope until the end. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You can't read that without thinking of Hebrews chapter 11 where he's going to go eventually. Where he's going to say, hey, by faith, 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 by faith. And list all these people. And then finally, he's going to say, and you want the ultimate example? Look to Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him, despised the cross, endured the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That's why he says, do not be sluggish. Don't become dull of hearing. Don't become lazy. Don't let up, slow up, or give up. Y'all, if you cling to the side of the mountain, the cliff is never going to truly pose a threat or a danger to you. But nonetheless, it's the presence of the cliff and the guardrail that keeps you close to Christ. Point number two tonight is this, and we only have two tonight. Respond rightly to this warning. Respond rightly to this warning. And now I'm specifically talking to you, Christian, not just about securing the fact that you won't apostatize. And the the way that you secure that is by making sure that you are in Christ, truly in Christ. 
and not just playing Christian. Now I'm, I'm talking about more now that I'm, I'm addressing you saying, okay, if you are in Christ and you're going, yes, I, I'm clinging to Christ. I'm in Christ. What should I do? Well, the answer is press on still more. Respond rightly to this warning. Two ways that you should not respond is by thinking this. Well, I'm in Christ and can never fall away, so why does this even matter? That's the wrong response to Hebrews chapter 6. To say, well, I mean, I'm, I'm secure, eternally secure, once saved, always saved, so why does it really matter? Well, if you are truly in Christ, you will have a concern for the dangers posed in this passage. You'll feel their weight even though they're not going to ever truly threaten you, your love for Christ will make you shudder at the thought of ever falling away from him. So you'll hug a little closer to the mountain tonight because of the reminder of the dangers of the cliff. You'll examine your life to say, okay, where are there areas where I'm not clinging to Christ and you will root them out and get them away? So the first incorrect response is to say, well, I'm in Christ, so what does it matter? Why does this, any of this matter? Because I'll never fall away. That's the wrong response. Second wrong response is this, thinking, well, I'm in Christ, but now I'm worried that I will fall away. No one accidentally apostatizes. Okay? It's a willful, clear, bold-faced rejection of Jesus in the gospel. So if you're in Christ, you will not fall away. Again, some of the, the passages you'll look at tonight in one of the small group questions about your security in Christ will help you with thinking through what that means and what that looks like and how I can have that confidence that I am safe in Christ. Because if you are in Christ, I want to stress to you again, hear me say this, you are safe in Christ. So then what is the right response? Well, I love this phrase that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians as he's writing to them saying, hey, you know what? You guys are doing pretty good overall. And then he says this, but I want you to excel still more. Excel still more. There's always room for improvement. Any of you out there who play golf, you can have the best round of your life and walk out and go, yeah, I still left some shots out there though. I could have done better. Because every single day of our walk with Christ, there's an opportunity for us to go, yeah, but I still left some shots out there. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, keep that mentality. Rest in your security in Christ and knowing that you are saved because of Christ's work, not yours. And yet at the same time, strive for greater Christ-likeness daily, daily, daily. That's what he means. Show the same earnestness. So how do we respond rightly? You cling closer to Christ. You pursue a greater Christ likeness. You lean into your pursuit of Jesus. You flee from that which threatens your relationship with Jesus. Flee from it, guys. The best defense against apostasy is a greater love for Jesus. heard me talk about it before. What stirs your affections for Christ? Fill your life up with more of what stirs your love for Jesus and less of what robs your affections for Jesus. When Amanda and I were in college, we had close friends who we spent a lot of time with. Friends of ours that went to master's and they were another dating couple and then eventually engaged and married couple while Amanda and I were just dating and then engaged. So we would go hang out at their apartment off campus and watch American Idol because that was what the cool thing to do at the time was. Yep. Anyways. And he was very biblically saturated. Knew his stuff. I would have theological conversations with him quite often. And she came from a, a Christian family as well. And after Amanda and I graduated, we moved away, got married, and drifted away from our, our relationship with them. And then eventually, kind of following their life on Facebook, really realized, wow, they've completely walked away from Christ. 
completely walked away from Christ. Y'all, Hebrews 6 is the guardrail to remind us of that danger. To cause us to stop and say, what am I really trusting in? And just like the guardrail on the switchbacks up the mountainside causes you to get a little bit closer to the mountain, you know, he, let Hebrews 6 cause you to get a little bit closer to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that nobody in this room would fall away. That nobody in this room would apostatize, would drift from, would abandon Jesus but that they would hold fast to Christ, that they would make sure, that they would check, that they would examine themselves, that they would daily consider whether or not their faith is truly in Christ or if they're trusting in anything else. Or there is salvation in no other name but Jesus, certainly not in our name. God, I pray that we would feel a security in our relationship with you if we are in Christ, a knowledge that if our faith is completely in you and not in ourselves and not in our works and not in being close to you, but being in you, Christ. I, I pray that if that's where our faith is, that there would be a great confidence in every single believer's heart in this room tonight. That they would not leave here afraid, but leave here encouraged to hold tighter to Jesus. But God, I do pray that if anyone in this room tonight is not trusting in Christ completely, but perhaps in their own good works or in a pseudo-Christianity or a false gospel, God, I pray that you would bring that to light. What if, if someone is simply close to Jesus but not in Jesus, I pray that you would reveal that in their hearts tonight, even right now, and cause them, Lord, a, a healthy trepidation and fear that they might be days away from you handing them over. And God, I pray that that knowledge and that reality would drive them to Christ and that they would truly be saved. Lord, we are thankful for passages like this that do remind us of the dangers that are the guardrail to drive us closer to Jesus. And I pray that we would respond rightly as the writer called us to do, to love Jesus more, to excel still more in all earnestness and full assurance of our hope and that we would grow in Christ's likeness until the day that you call us home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.